This is an ABC podcast. On ABC New South Wales, this is the Country Hour with Amelia Bernasconi. And a very good afternoon. Thanks for your company this lunchtime. Across the hour, we'll take a look at how floodplain harvesting rules are sitting with those in the Namoy Valley. Cash bonuses to keep your staff working hard and happy. What do you reckon about that? 0467 922 This half hour, we're going to look at how we attract people and keep them in the ag sector. And a little later today, after five years in operation, we look back at the frustrations and successes of the Regional Investment Corporation. Statistics out of our survey was that 55% of them agreed that their RIC loan enabled their farm to keep operating. Your experience is welcome on that too, 0467 922 684. Well, Namoy Valley irrigators say it remains to be seen how changes to floodplain harvesting allocations will impact them. State Water Minister Rose Jackson yesterday announced that to reduce the risk of over-allocation, floodplain harvesting shares in unregulated water sources in the Namoy will be reduced by up to 40%. Namoy Water Executive Officer Mick Coffey says consultation could have been greater. He told our reporter Lara Webster that the changes will likely come as a surprise to many. I think the main thing that Namoy Water would have is disappointment that we weren't consulted regarding any changes to that calculation methodology. We have been we have been contacted, but that was to tell us how it was going to be rather than engage on considering different options, which I think uh, would have been a more proactive step, which would have been viewed by our members and the communities that all the, um, the irrigation farmers support across the Namoy, I think. That would have been a better look for the government and the Department for Transparency and doing their due diligence, uh, not silly enough to think that we would be able to dictate terms back and get everything we wanted, but I think to um, to be part of that process would have been a, a much better choice for the department to have made rather than just ring us and let us know how it was going to be. But the department um, says the changes have been carefully considered and do follow community consultation. Yeah, you can draw that thread out of it. We've certainly had meetings and, and discussed things, but at, at no point was it a, a definite, um, here's what the number's looking like, how does that sit in the in the eyes of industry? Those decisions had already been made by the time we, we got um, informed of this. So how significant is that 40% in the Namoy Valley of, of you know that cut to floodplain harvesting shares in those unregulated water sources? How significant is that figure? It remains to be seen, Lara, based on individual draft entitlements that will come out next week. For some people, the number could even be a more realistic one to what they initially thought. For others, there's going to be people quite disappointed um, with the reduction or complete removal of an entitlement that they thought they were getting or may have um, may have been managing and planning for. So the overall number, perhaps, it'll be um, a bit more realistic, but at the same time, that's that's not the fault of industry that those numbers were put out initially um, and given to people. So I think there's um, the department's going to have to expect plenty of submissions back to them on this and questions asked as to how it's come about for people. I know that the the methodology is going to be clearly explained in, um, in layman's terms to people, but it's not going to make it an easy pill to swallow for everybody, that's for sure. Ultimately, uh, government says that 
these adjustments are made to improve water management and that's to you know strike the right balance between the environment water users and town supply. Namwa Water fully support those aspirations um, and the environment and communities absolutely come first but it's often forgotten that irrigation is the last form of water that's taken across any catchment um, that gets allocated so in dry years the government's just jumped ahead of themselves here which is Probably our feeling is the department's pushing in heavily on where they want to go before they're actually meant to be there. We're really, really pushing hard for more transparency and interaction. And whilst it is disappointing, some of these things that have happened at the same time, it's not as though we get no access. I think it's important to point out that we do get to interact with the department on varying levels and the minister has helped facilitate that. But at the same time, we We'd like to be involved earlier in conversations to help form decisions rather than be told of a decision once it's too late to give input into that. Mick Coffey is the Executive Officer with Namoy Water, speaking there with our New England Northwest reporter, Lara Webster. Now, the State Water Minister, Rose Jackson, says she has done genuine consultations and she wants to safeguard as many communities as possible with these changes. The Namoy is the last of the valleys in the Northern Basin um, to have floodplain harvesting licensing come into effect. You know, I've always been clear that I want to see um, floodplain harvesting license. It's the only way for us to know all of the water that is being extracted from the system and have a sort of proper way to monitor and measure that. But I have to say that the way that that was done by the previous government wasn't satisfactory to me and I was concerned that the overall volume of floodplain harvesting was a little bit unsustainable. So what we've done in Namoy is we've just changed the way that um, those licences are issued to take a more precautionary approach. I think that everyone can recognise it's getting pretty dry. Um, There's a lot of talk about the fact that we're probably heading into a drought. Um, Obviously, we hope that doesn't happen, but we do need to be really careful and really cautious. And so what we've done here is made sure that we've taken a balanced approach um, and we have issued licences um, or a regulation that allows us to issue licences in the NAMO, but we've done that in a more precautionary way. So this 40% reduction, does that sort of make it on par with other valleys in the north of the state or can you quantify that for me? Yeah, I mean, look, Namoy is still one of the, you know, larger valleys um, in terms of the amount of water that's been taken. That's one of the reasons why we've been a bit more cautious there. You know, it is um, a valley that that does have a quite a high level of licensed water take. Um, and so, yes, we, we are trying to bring it in line with other valleys and bring it in line with our sustainable um, extraction limits. That's the sort of sustainable amount of water that can be taken from the system. You know, we've seen already downstream conditions pretty dire. You know, the situation in the Menindee Lakes isn't great, despite all the water that we've had recently. I was in Menindee recently and the water quality isn't great and we're still very worried about another mass fish death there. So all of the water that's taken in the upstream valleys, um, you know, in- including Namoy, we need to be really careful about that, to be honest. Um, and so, you know, I want flood- 
floodplain harvesting to be able to happen. Um, I know it's an important water source for a lot of people, um, but it does need to be done in a precautionary way. And so that's why with NAMOI we've taken this approach. You acknowledge that important there. There are fears from some of those in the Namoy Valley that the reduction could mean that they lose their entitlements um, completely. I mean, and you touched on, you think we're going into a drought. I'm sure a lot of people would argue we're already there um, and they would going forward have to watch that water go past them. What do you say to those who could lose their whole entitlements? Look, we don't think a lot of people are going to lose their whole entitlement. I mean, floodplain harvesting is an opportunistic form of take. Um, People aren't doing floodplain harvesting in a drought. You know, floodplain harvesting only happens when there's water on the floodplain, you know, mm, in the But it's often to recover from a drought. We go from one extreme to the yeah. other, as we've seen. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. But actually, a lot of the evidence is that, you know, at those tipping points where you see those first flushes, you know, it's been very dry... Um, and, you know, you get that, that water coming through, that's actually a really critical time to replenish the rivers and the streams and the floodplains. And so we, we don't want too much water taken out in those, you know, first flush events when we finally get some rain through. Um, we, we do want to make sure that, that that flows down the river and it's connected. So, you know, we were trying to take a balanced approach here. The other thing that I'd say is by taking this approach, licensing floodplain harvesting, we're trying to take the um, pressure off reductions in supplementary licence because what's happening in Namoy at the moment is that any extraction above sustainable limits and we're having to take growth in use action that's only hitting supplementary licence holders. And I don't think that's fair on them. I want that shared between supplementary licence holders and other licence holders such as floodplain harvesting. So that I think is a really positive consequence here. It's it's going to be a fairer share of impact across licence holders. But as I said, you know, I think we we can't keep having a situation where we've got a pretty serious, you know, environmental conditions um, across the Northern Basin in the Menindee Lakes. We we do have to be careful. um, And that's why we've taken this approach. There was some disappointment shared from Namoy irrigators that they feel that, yes, they were contacted but but not really genuinely engaged with to, to come to this point. They say that they would have liked to have seen a little bit more transparency, not saying they weren't consulted at all, but they think it could have gone further. What do you say to those who don't feel like they've had their voices heard? Look, I mean, I, I'm, I'm always up for a conversation about what more we can do, but I mean, I met directly with Namoy Water um, on a number of occasions um, and I I know that we've consulted with them many times um, about this issue and that we continue to work with them on other issues of concern, such as the Namoy Water Source um, modelling, you know, which is another area that we're deeply engaged with them. I I mean, I think I'm not sure that it really is about consultation. I suspect people are just unhappy that we've taken a more precautionary approach. And, you know, all I can say to those people is I hope that they understand that we're trying to be balanced here. You know, we can't keep seeing, you know, millions and millions and millions of dead fish in the Menindee Lakes and very poor water quality there. You know, we can't keep seeing, you know, droughts, um, you know, which are uh, have very, very deep, you know, environmental and social and economic consequences. And, you know, a, a more precautionary approach to floodplain harvesting, which means that when we get those flushes through, you know, we know they're going to have maximum impact. That's a really important outcome for me. 
That is the state's water minister, Rose Jackson, speaking there. If you've got some thoughts on that, we always love to share with you here on the Country Hour. You can always text 0467 922 You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Let's step away from water policy and workforce now because finding and retaining good agricultural workers is one of the key challenges that we know so many of you face, no matter the commodity. Some farmers are looking to adopt some innovative bonus structures to hang on to their key workers and drive innovation within their businesses. Owner-manager of Tarthra Oysters, Gary Rodley, explains what he's doing with our reporter, Josh Becker. Over the years, Josh, we've, we've employed many, many, many young people, young local people, and we've had some absolute beauties, some real stars along uh, over the years. And it's always been a bit of a sense of frustration that you'd, you'd see these great kids come through and work for you and you'd think this person would be wonderful to have out here for a career. But, of course, you could never really offer them something that would, would attract them over... over you know, a big paying job in the city, for instance. We had to try and work out some way that we could attract them so that they wouldn't just see the thing as a um, after-school job or a summer job or a weekend job or a summer job or a summer holiday job um, or a, uh, at, at best, a gap year job, um, but they could see it as a career. I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to, trying to work out what we could come up with. I'd, I'd always had a little bit of an interest in uh, bonus structures. Well, in, in, in the end, when, when you know, the, the financial advisor couldn't do it and the accountant couldn't do it, and, and I thought, well, that, that's, I've hit a brick wall there. And in the end, after you know, tossing and turning about it at 3 o'clock in the morning and just sort of set about trying to come up with some figures. So I'm, I'm happy to share that with, with people for whatever value it might be. Um, but, but bear in mind, I'm no economist. I'm just a simple oyster farmer, Josh. So uh, I just crunched a few numbers and thought, thought what we were capable of and what, what, what would mean there'd be a bit left over for us. And, and basically, without, without sort of going into too many figures of our particular business or anything, so and the way it worked is, say, if you turn over $100,000, you would give them a, a $1,000 bonus. Then when you turn over $200,000... You give them an additional two thousand dollars bonus, uh, and on and on it goes. So, so obviously that won't work forever because eventually you'll be giving out so many bonuses you 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 won't be turning over enough money, particularly if you put four or five people on the bonus structure. So, you could say then cap that at whatever the ten percent figure was. So, so if you turn over that that hundred thousand to go from nine hundred thousand to a million, you would give them ten thousand dollars. But if you turned over one point one you would still give them $10,000. You wouldn't give them $11,000. So that, that's roughly what we, we came up with. So it becomes a pretty attractive thing, and potentially, you know, uh, for a business that turns over uh, something like those sort of figures, people could potentially double their wages. And, and then further on, if they've got, you know, lots of bright ideas and, uh, and can see the thing going even further, well, you know, you've got the potential to triple your wages. What would be a base wage of a worker and then the option for them to 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 um of how much they could earn let's is the base wage for an agricultural worker you know something like fifty seven thousand dollars or something along those lines and and what could this bonus structure mean their their end wage could be if if it's a you know average year or a good year 
Yeah, yeah. So without putting our particular figures in, 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 in Josh, uh, you know, say if that was a, a business turning over a, uh, a million dollars, you know, if the business got from eight hundred thousand to a million dollars, so say if that was a, the, the sort of place that a, a, a business might be at, um, that would potentially, you know, double that wage. You know, getting pretty close to doubling it, and then if you could, you know, turn over one point five, well, you, you're, you're talking about tripling the wage. You know, mm -hmm. so then, you know, and, and I'm and I'm talking about people who potentially will go away and have big careers in the city and be earning the, the silly bucks that people in the city can earn. So I'm I'm trying to offer them something as an alternative to that that they can see as a real reality, so that they might be able to come back, live in a beautiful place like Tarthra, have the potential for a career in Tarthra, have the potential to buy a house, and we've got we've got a couple of people on the bonus structure already, uh, and it's working fabulously. You know we've 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 hit the ground running for this year because of uh, all the wonderful work that they've done over the winter to prepare the farm because they're now, you know, they're, they're thinking about the whole place a different way and they're not just waiting for instructions about what are we going to do today. They're, and, and, and they're coming up with so many uh, different ways of doing things and improvements on things and so on. Gary, do you think that this is a model that could work for other agricultural businesses? That could livestock be businesses tie their, their turnover to, to a profitability and a bonus scheme like this? Well, that's really why I'm talking about it today, Josh. It, 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 you know, if it, other people, other farmers might get a bit out of it. And, and, the, and there's probably bonus schemes out there that have been developed that may well be better than this and, and would be more applicable. Um, but I couldn't find them, you know, in my, in my little search. So that's why I said about doing it myself. There you have it. Some ideas coming in from Tarthra Oysters owner-manager, Gary Rudley, speaking there with Josh Becker. Now, Jessica Roberts works in remuneration and salary benchmarking with Rimfire Resources. She says farmers just like Gary are getting creative to try and retain their workers. We conduct regular analysis of the Australian agribusiness workforce and employment market and certainly, um, I guess, a lot of the things that we've been seeing over the last couple of years is that businesses are really finding it, um, I guess, it's a boom in production based on the seasonal conditions that we've had and uh, the, I guess, decline in migration meant that there was a lot of pressure on employers to find staff in the first place, but also to retain staff um, and to keep those skills and knowledge within the business. Um, and I think one of the things that we've seen is certainly a, a bit of a shift from sort of discretionary finger-in-the-air type bonuses to businesses implementing more structured incentive and reward schemes. Uh, an oyster farmer I've spoken to is linking a, a bonus structure for his workers to um, to the turnover of the business. And what do you make of a, a, a remuneration scheme like that where, where you're uh, getting employee bonuses linked to, to turnover? Yeah, look, I mean, I think people have had to be really creative in terms of the structure of what they're doing with pay generally, but um, also those bonuses and incentives. Um, we talked previously about sort of um, people doing end-of-season bonuses to make up for sort of overtime work during, during the harvest season and also as a sort of a retention tool to keep people on during the harvest. What are some of the most um, innovative or unusual ones you're hearing across the agribusiness sector at the moment around how people are approaching um, looking at remuneration and, and all the 
other perks that come with trying to keep and retain workers at this point? Yeah, look, I think to be honest, um, not so much innovative but more of a return to tradition is that um, I think people really value feeling um, that they are individually being recognised. And I think a lot of that sort of um, recognising and rewarding tenure, like giving people, you know, a, uh, a bonus for reaching five years or 10 years or 20 years or whatever with the business. And, you know, even not so much necessarily paying them out a bonus at that time, but it just sort of recognising it and valuing it. Jessica Roberts from Rimfire Resources speaking there with Josh Becker. Keep your thoughts coming in on 0467 922 684. Lots on water, but we're going to stay with workforce for a little bit longer because we've been hearing there those cash bonuses. They're very attractive, but there are other unique opportunities that the ag sector can offer. With the current housing crisis, are we seeing employers that can offer homes as part of a package, seeing a boom in their applicants? And are we drawing people back to agriculture that we might have lost to other industries? Peter Walters is a recruitment consultant from Agricultural Appointments. He joins us now. Welcome to the country, our Peter. Hi, Amelia. Thanks for joining us today. I guess starting with this state of play, have we seen people coming back to agriculture where we'd previously lost them? Um, very much so. We, we, we certainly saw a, a quite a large, and it has flattened out, but a quite a rise post-COVID. Um, quietening down and people wanting to move back out of being cities um, and or out of mining or out of trades and they may have but they may have started their career or come off a farm and they were definitely looking to get out of larger locations whether it be Sydney Newcastle and go back to the country basically. You mentioned mining there I'm based in the heartland of mining country in the Upper Hunter and we see uh, lots of our big companies offering five and even $10,000 sign-on bonuses. Things like that are hard to compete with, but you say we are making traction in people coming back to agriculture. What's been attracting them? We had that innovation there from an oyster farmer, but what have you seen attracting people back from those big other players like mining? Well, generally it's it's lifestyle and, and whether it's um, they with their family uh, as opposed to single guys and girls, it's generally I'm saying it's family-driven. And we're seeing that right across the country, um, uh, whether it's coming out of mining or they're wanting to move from Western Australia on a cropping property back to the eastern states because they want to be, uh, I think that's all industries, not just ag, but they want to be close to family and friends, um, their original network. Um, so what's happening, I've seen, yeah, out of people leaving the Hunter Valley and mining, for instance, they want to go move to back to Young, for instance, or Wagga because their wife's from there. Um, so, and they've gone, right, I'm making big bucks, but I'm doing weird hours and, you know, I want to be around with the family, basically. Mm. So they're, they're willing to let go the, the large salary of mining and they've made a good quid to come back to something that's more, um, uh, let's say, family-friendly. Mm. Yeah, I think lots of I think COVID did that sort of a um, self-check for a lot of people, that work-life balance. You're hearing from Peter Walters this afternoon from Agricultural Appointments. Now let's look at this housing crisis because that's putting a pinch on almost everyone. But we are seeing, of course, that people on the land who might have extra homes or cottages, you know, they can be offering free rent essentially as part of salary packages. Are we seeing big applicants um, for those sort of roles? Is that Having an impact? Oh yeah, look, that's a definitely an attraction in agriculture. So um, most places will have a part of the package, uh, obviously a base salary, uh, or it might be an hour, hourly rate, depending mm. whether it's cropping versus livestock operations. But generally, there's a house comes with it. 
um, and and obviously you get a, a basically house utilities, i.e. power, paid for. A lot of places, the farmers then, because they own it, uh, I never, normally recommend that they move from giving phone allowances and mobiles because everyone's got a mobile. They don't mm. need that pay, but some do stick with it. But they pay the internet as well. So you've got your rent paid, uh, effectively, house, power, internet, um, and then you might um, also, if, if it's a livestock property, get meat for personal use and or um, the dogs. So it's pretty attractive. And that, that just on sums, um, that can be somewhere between thirty-five dollars to $40,000 pre-tax for yeah. uh, a, a family or an individual. Uh, and that's, that's attractive to these guys or girls that are going, okay, I'm getting out of mining or I'm, I'm working as a plumber in Newcastle. Uh, I'm going to go back because I know... I'm going to not get that much, the the actual payg, but I'm actually going to spin and roundabout here is I'll get something like you know twenty to forty thousand dollars in benefits um, type thing. So I imagine that's rather attractive to young people as well. Not to say that you know these jobs come without skills. You've got varying degrees. You know, it might be a farm manager, but it also might be you know a, a package looking to encourage young people into the workforce that they can build and then grow with the business. I mean. Having rent, utilities, and and you know potentially diesel and meat thrown in, I think if if I was twenty years old again, it's very attractive. <laughs> yeah, very much so. So and and I think Ron or Riley, we generally see country people uh, following those pathways versus, um, and we get the odd uh, guy or girl that might have been um, you know brought up not on a farm, which is great. We need that diversity, and they go to uni or they go to Tokyo Ag and, and do the courses and they come into the industry that way, yeah. I don't know if it's like, oh, I get all the house and free rent. It's, it's the driver. It's the passion for being on the land. That's just the bonus or benefit of a, a property um, can provide to these um, young people. Mm, yeah, we definitely need that passion first up. Peter, really great to speak with you this afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. No problem. Thank you. Thank you very much. Peter Walters, a recruitment consultant from Agricultural Appointments there. At half past 12, you're listening to The Country Hour. We'll get a uh, hit of weather next and uh, also before one o'clock, a global pledge to use more timber to build homes and buildings. But is it achievable? You'll hear from the timber industry soon and uh, more renewables discussions to come. It's been a bit of a flavour this week. Today, we take a look at how farmers are feeling about a proposal in The Hunter. But at 29 minutes to one, Bindi Bryce is here with the news headlines. Hey, Bindi. Hey, Amelia. A police officer who met with Brittany Higgins after her alleged rape has told the federal court the former staffer was concerned about the replaceable nature of her employment ahead of the 2019 election. Detective Senior Constable Sarah Harmon has testified to Bruce Lerman's defamation trial against Network 10 and Lisa Wilkinson. His criminal trial for allegedly raping Miss Higgins was aborted with no findings against him. Detective Harmon has told the court Miss Higgins decided not to go ahead with the complaint citing workplace demands. The Reserve Bank Governor is changing the way they do things. Michelle Bullock and the Treasurer Jim Chalmers have reached a new agreement on the conduct of monetary policy for the first time in more than nine years. Some tweaks have been made to how it achieves its target of 2.3% inflation 
and there has to be a greater explanation of how it uses monetary policy tools other than interest rates to manage the economy. The softwood timber industry says it won't be easy to meet a commitment made at the United Nations COP28 summit to build more homes out of timber. At the meeting in Dubai, the Australian government, along with other countries, committed to use more timber in construction by 2030. Um, But some Some leaders in the industry have said that timber is in short supply since the Black Summer bushfires. And a kangaroo has made a break for it in Canada, escaping from a zoo and going on the run for a few days. Police say the roo broke free while it was being transferred in another zoo in Ontario. Officers were trained on how to catch the animal and were able to secure it after a short scuffle and now it's safely back with her kind, Millie. <laughs> I feel like a few calls down under maybe for a hand to um, relocate that roo, Bindi. I know, anyone in the country could have gone over there and tackled that kangaroo. <laughs> the Australian expertise. Thanks for bringing us up to speed this afternoon. No worries. Bindi Bryce there from our ABC Upper Hunter News team. At uh, 27 minutes to one, heading to the weather in a sec, I promise, but we have just had the rural fire service issue a uh, harvest safety alert. This is for Carathal, Griffith, Hay, Leeton, Murrumbidgee and Narandra local government areas due to those deteriorating weather conditions. So landholders undertaking any kind of harvest operations in those areas are advised to stop, check the local weather conditions, check their gear and then decide whether or not it is safe to continue. But let's bring in Jake Phillips now at the Weather Bureau because there's lots more warnings about. Good afternoon, Jake. Good afternoon, Amelia. I think we're all... um, I think, I think we know that it's hot, um, but let's, let's go through. We do have some total fire bans in place and heat warnings uh, around there as well. We do indeed, yes. So at the moment, the, the total fire bans and uh, fire weather warnings, uh, mainly for the central and southwestern parts of the state. So for today, we're advising of uh, extreme fire danger for the Northern Riverina and southwestern fire areas. And uh, some total fire bans for those areas and also some areas in the central west as well. And everywhere west of the divide is, is seeing elevated fire danger today. And that's probably no surprise considering we're looking at temperatures getting into the 40s as they have done for the last couple of days across a, a fairly broad area. And uh, coupled with that today, we're also seeing some increased wind in the far west. And that's one of the things that's really driving the fire danger. So we're seeing winds of around 30 to 40 kilometres an hour in parts of the far west at the moment, out sort of Broken Hill and uh, Fowler's Gap, and even as far east as sort of Cobar is pretty windy today. Goodness. Uh, yeah, that doesn't really help fire conditions at all. That's right, yes. So obviously heat and uh, wind are a couple of the key factors for driving those fire dangers along with the humidity. Mm, what have we seen in terms of the top temperatures today? Have they exceeded expectations? They're still climbing. At the moment, we've got quite a number of places just nudging 40 degrees in the northwest corner of the state at the moment. And even further through the eastern parts, a lot of places are well into the 30s. It's really only along the coast where we're seeing northeasterly winds bringing slightly cooler air off the sea. And that's where conditions are milder, but you don't have to go very far inland, as most people will be aware, before those temperatures are already well into the 30s. And, uh, yeah, temperatures through a fairly broad area of the west today will get over the 40-degree mark. Some places it could be as high as about 46 degrees. So that heat wave warning is um, well and truly still alive. Yeah. Has it been extended at all into the new week or day by day? Uh, it's, uh, it is extended. At this stage, it only really goes till the end of the weekend or the start of the very start of the week, but we'll be reissuing that in a couple of hours from now, generally around about 3 p.m., uh, it's likely that it will taper off a little bit heading into the new week. So at the moment, we've got a fairly broad area of the state under severe heat wave, 
and it looks like that might taper off to the what we call lower intensity heat wave as we get into the new week for a lot of areas, but still remaining hot right through the coming week. Uh, again, it's really only the coastal areas that are going to be spared the worst of the heat, and there's even a couple of days when the heat will get through to the coast, and tomorrow is one of those days. So through the Illawarra and Hunter districts particularly, as well as Sydney, we're looking, looking at seeing those hot northwesterly winds which are currently confined to the west, pushing right through to the coast. So pretty nasty conditions on the way before it cools off a little bit uh, in the new week. Mm. I just wanted to check with you too, Jake, before I let you go. There's still this talk of uh, isolated showers and thunderstorms. Is there any exactly. any update of any goodness in them? Yes, glad you brought it up. It's <laughs> definitely worth a mention. So at the moment, we're just seeing the odd uh, uh, bit of lightning around the southern border region. Uh, but through the course of today... Right throughout the central and southern inland, we could see some isolated thunderstorms. I don't think we'll see a widespread outbreak. It'll just be patches here and there. And if you are near one of those, probably not a lot in the way of rainfall. In fact, some of them may be completely what we call dry thunderstorms, so the rain might evaporate before reaching the ground. But the real risk with those storms is wind gusts. So keep an eye out this afternoon through the southern and central inland of the state we could see some thunderstorm warnings issued for damaging winds later in the afternoon. So we'll be watching that one pretty closely today. And again tomorrow uh, through the southern inland and maybe even parts of the southeast, we could see some of those gusty storms. Yeah, a lot to get through there, Jake. We always appreciate your insights here on the Country Hour. Thanks for today. No trouble. Thank you. Thank you. Jake Phillips at the Bureau of Meteorology. 22 to 1 and Amelia Bernasconi filling in today and this week and next week for Michael Condon, actually. But uh, there has been a lot happening today up on the north coast where we head to now and the Department of Primary Industries says there are signs of red imported fire ants spreading further south in New South Wales. It comes after an infestation was found at Mwilumba on the north coast last month. That's being contained by authorities. Police have been out today screening trucks coming in from Queensland to make sure that there aren't any more ants hitching a ride there into New South Wales. Scott Charlton is the Chief Invasive Species Officer from the DPI and he says the ants can spread quickly. They are investigating, uh, the DPI is investigating any possible outbreaks as far south as Ballina. We have a, a movement restriction around that area for particular high-risk commodities. So we're working on the assumption that we'll treat five kilometres to be very thorough. Now, having said that, there could be one or two ants that we've worked out in terms of their prevalence. We'll establish a nest and we start all over again. So we're treating it very thoroughly. That event does highlight the risk of movement of materials into New South Wales. So unrelated to this event, there could be another area. So we're doing uh, the work on the tracing to make sure that the the high-risk businesses that have um, been linked to this are actually all traced forward and those related sort of um, movements are sort of being investigated in various places in New South Wales. For instance, um, yeah, as far down as Ballina, there's been trace forward. So we have, we have dog teams working in Ballina in various locations. We're taking every report very seriously. And so it's, it's incredibly important that the community actually takes responsibility, gets on the phone, tells us if they suspect an ant, um, so we can actually go chase it out. So we need everyone's eyes and ears on this. Any area that's uh, being developed and being, um, yeah, receiving materials, the proximity of the Queensland is obviously a high risk because of the, the number of businesses and developers in Queensland who work across the border. So um, any, any location could be a risk. So that's why everyone needs to be on the lookout and um, identifying this. But we're tracing businesses to various locations specifically to check that. 
That's Scott Charlton. He's the Chief Invasive Species Officer from the New South Wales DPI. You might have some thoughts on that as well. I will get to your text actually shortly. Sorry, there's been a few coming through. It's 20 to 1 on the Country Hour. On ABC Radio New South Wales, this is the New South Wales Country Hour. Uh, Tim having a bit of a laugh saying go Skiffy. Uh, a story there from Canada in our news headlines. A roo escaped. Uh, we were thinking maybe they need some Aussie expertise, but Tim says no, go Skiffy. And a few more coming through as well. Uh, someone saying that spray drift onto cotton's happening again in the south. Uh, reminder to keep the chemical on the weeds. We'll be looking closer at that next week, actually. And um, a few comments coming in on the floodplain harvesting changes. Uh, Viv, you are belong where, says better for cotton farmers to lose their entitlements than for downstream towns and villages to lose their domestic water supply. Viv says that could cost lives. Thanks for your thoughts today. Viv, you too can join this conversation on 0467 922 684 here at the Country Hour. Now, the federal government agency that was established to provide loans to farmers says it has improved its operation in an attempt to speed up what's been a frustrating process for many producers. The Regional Investment Corporation, or Barnaby's Bank as it was dubbed, it was set up in 2018 and it's paid out more than $3 billion in loans since. However, some producers have expressed concern in recent years about the time it's taken to have a loan application approved. The corporation's chief executive, John Howard, spoke to Tim Fuchs about a new independent report that's been released, taking a look at the experiences that customers have had with the RIC. We've deployed circa $3.2 billion in loans to around 3,000 customers in that period of time. And one of the overwhelmingly... Uh, impactful statistics out of our survey was that 55% of them agreed that their RIC loan enabled their farm to keep operating um, and without it they may not have actually survived. So as we are aware that East Coast drought was for three years so the financial benefit from our concessional interest loan rates was definitely significant. And in what ways are the loans being spent yeah, a range of things we're seeing. Um, we're the ability to refinance, um, but also critically to manage through those periods of time with the addition of capital. So to provide, you know, uh, capital for watering points, um, fencing infrastructure, um, fodder storage, but also we're seeing, you know, in preparation for future events, things like uh, containment feeding yards and those types of things also being initiated as well. What are some of the concerns in regards to the feedback that you had in the report, the concerns of uh, members of the farming community at the moment? Yeah, three main ones that were identified and uh, as we've all seen over the last sort of 12 or 18 months, rising interest rates has been a significant one uh, and with 82% that was the highest uh, concern that was identified to us. Um, water security and drought, so uh, this survey was held earlier this year and the forecast of uh, at that point in time was significant and it wasn't just a forecast for some if we get into the northwest of New South Wales especially and into some of those western regions of Queensland um, they weren't able to plant a crop or they destocked significantly if they were a livestock operation. And then income volatility was the next one. Over the last five years since the establishment of RIC, of course, there's been cases of 
producers um, concerned about the challenges of being able to get a loan, the amount of time that loans would be paid out. Uh, how much work has gone into to trying to smooth the process? Yeah, enormously. Going back to that East Coast route, which was significant beyond any expectation, um, in recognition of that, the government at the time came out with... Uh, Ours are a 10-year loan, five years interest only, five years principal and interest. At that point in time, however, instead of five years interest only, it was two years interest free and then three years interest only, which was then had a, all applications had to be in by a set date. Um, we got bombarded in that and that really compromised the timeframes. Um, pleasingly, however, um, things have settled down because we haven't had a, a event of that magnitude, but also aware that given the you know, variability that we're seeing in our seasons now and more and more extremes being felt, that may come about. So we've significantly made changes. Uh, all of our operating processes now are done internally at the RIC. We don't go through third parties. We do the full assessment ourselves. So we've got systems and personnel uh, and operating things now which are scalable, which we're able to reflect the funding that we're available that is available to us in any one particular year, uh, and also the demands that we see in any particular season. Do you have an average time of once someone starts applying when they could expect to receive the loan? What we're seeing in recent data is probably three to four months uh, would be the cycle from when a submission is made through to final set settlement. I notice you've got a farm business loan variable interest rate currently at 4.52%. Uh, how do you determine what the in interest rate will, will be? Uh, and I guess we've, we've seen interest rates in the news so much over the last 12 months or so. Ours is calculated not off the cash rate that uh, the RBA comes out and does updates on monthly. Ours is off calculated off the 10-year government bond rate plus a margin to cover our operating expense. So theoretically, we're a zero-cost product to the government. Um, our interest rate reflects their cost of capital and the operation of ourselves. So currently, that rate's at 4.52%. The next, uh, Our rates are... Fixed for a, well, they're a variable rate for a six month period though. So our next review will be, or next change, or potential change, will be the 1st of February next year. John Howard is the Chief Executive of the Regional Investment Corporation, speaking there with Tim Fuchs. The New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. 13 to 1 and the softwoods industry says more needs to be done to increase the amount of timber available following a commitment at a recent United Nations summit. At COP28 in Dubai, the Australian government and 16 other countries committed to increase the use of timber in buildings by 2030 due to its ability to store carbon. The chair of the Softwood Working Group and Murray Region Forestry, Peter Crow, told Simon Wallace that there's already a shortage of timber and more planting needs to be done, especially after the devastating bushfires four years ago. There are serious resource constraints in, uh, in Victoria and southern New South Wales as a consequence of those fires and uh, we won't see those shortages and constrictions overcome till uh, the newly planted forests uh, come to maturity in 28 or 30 years' time, even though there will be pulpwood available uh, now in about 10 to 12 years' time and in considerable volumes, but not uh, mature saw logs. So that's a fact of life. 
what we're talking about is uh, wanting to use more wood. All the information that I have, uh, and I attended the Australian Timber Supply Summit just a couple of months ago, indicates that wood will be in global short supply for the foreseeable future as populations increase and per capita consumption increases. But in terms of um, replacing concrete and steel with wood, our industry has been at the forefront of doing just that. Does there need to be huge plantings taking place in Australia but all around the world for the building industry? Australia uh, has to face up to the problem of sovereign supply because we're going backwards. In fact, we're not planting more trees, we're planting less. And the size of our plantation estate is actually shrinking. There needs to be combined action on all fronts to uh, redress that situation uh, so that we can continue to advance towards using more and more wood in uh, construction. Where do we get a lot now? Look, there's all sorts of material that comes into Australia. Engineered boards, you know, MDF and particle board. There was a fair bit of material coming in from uh, Russia, but that, of course, has been declared out of bounds because of the uh, Ukraine war. There was quite a significant volume coming into Australia out of Europe as a result of tree health issues, but that's now been cleaned up and it's stopped. We still rely heavily on exports from the uh, Pacific Northwest of the US and Canada. And, of course, uh, the Baltic states are still producers of softwood framing specifically for the Australian construction market. So we get, we get our wood from a range of growers, most of whom, I might say, are uh, producing plantation-grown wood. In other words, somebody went out there and planted the trees like they've been doing in Europe for centuries. But there's certainly, uh, there's certainly no, uh, no surplus of structural-grade wood around the world. We're a very small consumer in the overall scheme of things. But what it does mean is that uh, we have to be very careful. And, and, in fact, Australia has laws to ensure that imported wood has complied with the uh, highest standard of forest management practices. But uh, I understand that's not always the case. But at the moment, as it stands, Australia, you think would struggle to build more houses out of timber in seven years' time with the supplies we've got at the moment? Well, there will be fluctuations up and down in wood availability depending on the state of the economies globally. You know, if, for example, there's a massive push on house construction in North America and, say, India, China, that would make availability to Australia pretty tight and the price will be high. That's the chair of Softwood Working Group in Murray Region Forestry, Peter Crow, speaking there to Simon Wallace at 10 to 1 on the Country Hour, where we've had lots of discussions about renewables this week. Today, we head to the Upper Hunter, where decision makers from the New South Wales Independent Planning Commission have wrapped up their visit and a public meeting this week. About 40 people attended a meeting at Musselbrook yesterday to discuss Arc Energy's plans for a 56 wind turbine a turbine wind farm at Bowman's Creek. The proposal was referred to the IPC after more than 140 submissions were received, the vast majority in opposition. Residents raised concerns about the visual impacts, noise, bushfire risks and land clearing. Local property owner Nigel Wood told reporter Bindi Bryce the company wants the club 
the turbines too close to residents. They dominate the landscape and the department are going, oh yeah, they don't dominate the landscape whatsoever. They're six, seven hundred metres higher than our house. That's how high they are, three kilometres away. The submissions are wrapping up. It seems like the decision is, is imminent. Um, yeah, what's the feeling like among yourself and you know the other landholders who came to the meeting? I think it's a, a, a done deal. Hopefully some of the consent conditions will, will help protect us a little bit. For my property, where we live, it will take 10 years for the trees to have any impact at all. Not full impact, have any impact. We will have over 20 turbines with, fl- with lights on them and the lights will be flashing because the turbines will go around flashing in our bedroom window and we've got two windows in that one bedroom that, our main bedroom facing right towards the wind farm and it was touched on today a, a few times the fire risk the bushfire risk we're in a high fire prone area we're one road in and one road out it's a death trap that's what they're creating a death trap and they go they don't get fires on the wind turbines there was two fires on wind turbines this year already and you can't go in with aerial firefighting because the the turbines will interfere with that. Local landholder Nigel Wood there. Now the Department of Planning, Industry and Environment has backed the proposal and says the project is meeting key criteria but would like the company to scrap two further turbines. Cattle farmers Greg and Leonie Ball also own land near the wind farm and they're in support of it. The wind farm will be going on on parts of our property um, on the ridgelines you know, it's a reasonable distance from the house, so there should be very minimal um, impact on us. And we are, we are a, a beef cattle operation, so we breed and finish our um, livestock on the property. So, you know, agriculture is our baseline. We're always looking at progressiveness and opportunities to, to develop our market with our cattle, and we see this as a, another option as, you know, looking after the land and being sustainable for future generations. And resilient, being resilient, yeah, it gives us a few more options, I think. I mean, we've been hearing, um, you know, so much feedback about the visual and the noise complaints, um, but you guys are are okay with it? Uh, Greg and I have had the opportunity to visit many wind farms and we feel that that has given us good gauge as to what to expect. We haven't had um, a lot of adverse reaction to them. If you stand underneath them, yes, you do hear them, but from distances away, it's not that problematic, we don't find. It's not a decision we've taken lightly. We've been on this treadmill or road for the last probably 12 to 13 years. We feel we have made a very well-informed decision. That's Greg and Leonie Ball speaking there with Upper Hunter reporter Bindi Bryce. The deadline for written submissions on the Bowman's Creek wind farm to the IPC will close in just under a fortnight on Thursday, December 21. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. We bring you the latest from Gaza, where many residents are struggling to afford food. Heat wave, temperatures soar to the mid-40s in some parts of Australia. Emergency services on alert amid fears of bushfires. And texting for help. The National 1800 Respect Line to provide a text service so that people facing domestic, family or sexual violence can seek assistance discreetly. Those stories on The World Today. Right now you're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour at 5 to 1. Amelia Bernasconi filling in today. We'll go to markets shortly, but we have seen huge yardings right across the state sale yards this week. Singleton saw the biggest number in four years and it just doubled on the week before. Gunnedah, big numbers and a big lift being reported by agents there as well. It's been echoed across the state. In Tamworth today, early predictions for the store sale 
think have just about doubled. It's all still underway, but the head of the Tamworth Agents Association, Angus Newcomb, has stepped away for a quick chat. Angus, good afternoon. Uh, yeah, good to chat to you. How did today's numbers compare and, I suppose, reflect on the current conditions we're seeing? Uh, yeah, we've got uh, big numbers here today. There'll be five and a half to six thousand. I think everyone just cashing in there, uh, getting in before Christmas there because we won't have our next door sale there until the middle, middle of January. So, so they're yeah, seeing a few numbers come out of the woodworks. And what about the prices? Are you seeing lots of wieners come through at this time of year? Uh, yeah, just some late wieners and some um, some autumn drop wieners. But um, no, a lot, a lot of yearlingy type, trophy type cattle there today. No, they're selling well. A lot of the steers up to twelve hundred type thing in Maine and run of the mill top steers from that seven seven fifty to a thousand dollars. Yeah, it's still a big um, big drop though off that. What was it? Nearly twelve dollar ecky we saw in January of twenty twenty one. Are people pretty happy with the prices though? They have been lifting. Yeah, they have been. It's all on the go forward now. So hopefully, yeah, you know, like we've got this bit of a heat wave at the moment, but you'll uh, just take a bit of the sap out of the feed. But um, no, all the cattle, the cattle need a bit of warm feed to lose a bit of coat and uh, and go forward there over the summer. Yeah. Well, hopefully it all goes well this afternoon. Some big numbers there and hopefully some um, happy people walking away from their sales as well. Uh, we've, got, we've got a good crowd here today. Like the cattle cattle line up and present very well. And uh, no, a lot of the buyers here are happy with what they've purchased so far. So, so far, so good. Very good. We'll appreciate you stepping away, Angus. Uh, thanks for joining us. No worries at all. Thank you good very much. You. Angus Newcomb, he's the uh, outgoing president. He's been the president of 2022 with the Tamworth Livestock Agents Association at two minutes to one. Let's go to other markets and Jenny Kelly has been at Griffith. Good afternoon. Bit of excitement today with heavy lambs much dearer as they followed Wagga to average over 700 cents a kilo carcass weight. Bigger yarding of 8,300 lambs here at Griffith, including the best grain-fed lambs we've seen here for weeks. These grain-fed lambs, up around 30 to 33 kilos carcass weight, sold from 216 to a top of $242.20 at a ballpark cost of 720 cents. Some export weight woolly suckers, 190 to a top of 220 at around 620 to 660 cents a kilo. Underneath this was a lot of heavy crossbreds and dorper lambs, 24 to 30 kilos, which made from 135 to 185 dollars, depending on size and quality, in a range of 620 to 680 cents. Plainer and light lambs are also dearer, but not to the same extent of the really good lambs. And it must be said that if you are looking for $200 plus for lambs, they have to be very well bred, well fed and very neatly presented. The light lambs today, 40 to $120. Sheep sale mostly held its ground at 250 to 300 cents for good lines of mutton. Heavy merino used 80 to a top of 103. Big crossbreds to $105. Most sheep 40 to $70. Jenny Kelly for MLA. And that's our look at the markets for today on the Country Hour. But some uh, late-breaking news coming in we thought we should share with you. The son of a Cropper Creek farmer who killed an environmentalist in 2014 has been sentenced for land clearing. Ian Turnbull was sentenced to 35 years in prison for the death of Glenn Turner. And now Mr Turnbull's son, Grant, has pleaded guilty to illegal land clearing in the Land and Environment Court and has been ordered to pay more than $400,000 
in damages. You'll be able to read more from our New England Northwest team soon online. But that's just about it for us on the Country Hour today. Thanks for your company today and this week. I'll be back with you from Monday as well as Condo takes a week off. I believe he's painting the house. He'll be back with you before Christmas is out, though. Never fear. Plenty to share with you on Monday. We're going to have a look at workforce burnout following our conversations today. And you'll also hopefully hear from grain growers, uh, their thoughts as the fire ants potentially moving as far south as Ballina, as we heard today. But have a safe and happy weekend. We are heading up to the latest news and I will be back with you from Monday and your rural reports from quarter past six on Monday morning. Have a great day. It is one o'clock. This is an ABC podcast.